Cam Schwab in over 75 episodes now. You are the first repeat guest on Where Others Won't. Right. So congratulations, wow. mate. Thank you. Oh, well, that is, a, that is an honour because you've got to get some unbelievable guests. And my sense is that you probably found yourself in conversations which had more dimensions and layers and uh, so it might be a good time to start uh, dusting off a few and dragging them back out. There's there's going to be a few, yeah. Some alumni have done some amazing things that I want to catch up on and you're yeah. one of them. And, yeah, I was just looking. So we the episode didn't come out until January, but the last time that we were on together was almost two years ago. It was the finals, mm-hmm. the end of the finals in 2019. So a lot's... Right happens in yeah. footy in the world in leadership uh covid obviously mm. where does where, where does your mind go straight away like what have you been observing recently let's start broad well the world well the world in terms of um how how we saw relationships how we saw connection how we see uh you know, how we communicate. The interesting thing is because I, I work with leaders the whole time, it, 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 it's it's interesting that a lot of people say, you know, culture is so much harder now than what it ever was, you know, building culture inside organisations. Um, and then you have the reflection and you talk, well, how did you go about it previously? And, and most of the times they weren't doing very much was, was my take. <laughs> you know, they're, they're actually able to take it almost for granted in some ways by, by having keep people in a room often, mm. uh, there, there was enough there in its own way for it to form, which, which culture should form in, a, in quite an organic, natural way, but it wasn't necessarily aligned to anything in particular. So, so any strategy that we look to execute or develop or implement will require a behaviour of some shape or form for that to happen, you know, whether it's a winning sporting team, whether it's getting a product to market, whatever whatever it might be. And that's driven by, so behaviours drive strategy, culture drives behaviours, behaviours then drive back into, into, into culture, that sort of circular nature to it. And it's really leadership which drives culture. So it's it's given us a much stronger alignment between leadership and strategy, if you like, we, we, a certain outcome that we're seeking. I've probably come to terms with the fact that you can't outperform your leadership in, in any environment in, in, in lots of ways. So so people who were able to say, oh, we have great culture here, maybe that was just happening um, as a result of just being in proximity to each other rather than a conscious process. Whereas in sport, that we never allow that to happen, do we? You know, we, we, mm. we are... You know, the old saying, you know, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, that's assuming that you're strategically making the time, the effort, putting the resources into building culture. And sport does that. From the minute you walk in the door, you're, you know, you're, you're expected to grow as a leader, to develop yourself as a leader. Well, the military the same, the business we don't. So a lot of, a lot of the leaders I'm talking to are saying, well, this culture thing's could become really hard, but I also think that perhaps they weren't doing too much about it anyway. Um, so the good thing is that it's actually forced them down that track. And, and the, the the challenge will be when they're actually all sitting, they are sitting in the same, 
you know, in the same environment at some point in time because people will want the world to be different. They won't want, want it to go back to what it was. Will they then, you know, those people who weren't prepared to work at it at the time then be insistent that that's the way it works because they can't be stuffed doing it in any other way? There's a lazy version of it, if you like. Um, from a sport perspective, the game's never been harder at any level. The expectations of the athletes, the expectation of the coaches, the expectations of the people trying to keep the competitions going has never been higher. They're doing it with less resources than they've ever done it before. Um, and But it seems to me that the expectations on performance haven't changed. You know, that we, we have a lot of people who... We sit in judgment of those who put themselves in the arena and and I don't know if we can ever change that. Now, at a personal level, I've had cancer as well, so there's probably been a fair bit going on since the last time we chatted in lots of ways. Yeah. So I've had to go deep, you know, from, from that perspective in learning about um, what happens when uh, your body fails you, which is the first experience I've had mm. in that sense. So it's, it's, been, it's been a deeper learning and really trying to make sense of things. I think really as leaders, our, our job is to try and make sense of ambiguity. That's the first challenge. You know? our, our, our job is to try and find meaning, you know, in, in what we do. Our, our job is to find a sense of place for people, particularly in ourselves. But no, I've worked out that none of those three things happen unless you create space for that type of thinking. And probably cancer taught me that. That if I don't yeah. make if I don't make space for for you know for for sense meaning place, um, and that in some way we now live in Dalesford, for instance, in country Victoria, because because of that experience, you know, trying to find and create a new sense of place for ourselves in a way which um, which which has the meaning that we. That idea, making space, making time, separation in in the domains that you just talked about. So uh, I guess go wherever you feel natural with this, but, you know, we talk CEOs and organisations, corporate organisations, sporting organisations and the, the coaches there or yourself. Do you... How do you advise the people that you work with or how are you trying to cope with these new demands on time? So, you know, it was easy. <laughs> it was easier for a CEO in the office to close the door yeah. and say, fuck off, hold my calls, no one in, I need to sit in here. Whereas now you see people's calendars, they post their calendars on, on social media of just block, 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 block. So are we, like, are we doing enough to, to capture those or to create that space and that time to do that thinking or is it just this rat race? Well, the answer is no, that we're not. The question is why aren't we? Mm. So... So if um, I think strategy needs to be two things. So let's just talk about it as a pure strategic. So we're, we're talking the strategy of Cody at this point. So, so the, the two things strategy has to be, the first one, it has to be very compelling. So the, the, what, what you're trying to do and achieve, there must have been something 
compelling that made you set up this podcast, write your books, but you also recognise that none of it was going to be easy. But whatever the story was, was such that you were prepared to put yourself into a place of discomfort, productive struggle, whichever term you want to use, to actually create something which was worthwhile, which was worthwhile. And then the second choice you have to make is what are the trade-offs I'm prepared to now make to actually achieve that outcome? And the, the trade-offs are time, yes, time, but it's mainly energy and attention, which are the two things. Am I prepared to put my energy and give this thing my attention? We, we measure those two things mainly in time, but I think time is more the outcome. So, so if a leader is actually saying that I'm prepared to let my day fill out by um, the external forces uh, which uh, are taking up the space, well, they're basically saying that that's more important than the conversation that we're now having. So if you, I, I put it into two categories. Okay, The first one is you have to do the curiosity. Like you have to do, you have to be, you know, are you putting yourself in, you know, Michael Gervais uses a wonderful saying. He says, are you putting yourself in conversation with wise people? Are, are you doing that? In, and hopefully that's in a place of diversity in not just, wise people as in the wise people who you enjoy talking to and I've certainly got those people in my network. Yeah, and do the curiosity as in the books we listen to, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to, um, you know, the courses we do, whatever it might be. So that's you're curious in that sense. But then you have to do the work. And, and so the do the work piece is... Uh, creating just space in a, a uh, on a day by day basis. You know, do you journal? Do you meditate? And for me, journaling is a big part. I think almost everything I now bring forward comes out of that practice of, of journal, which is it might be just writing. And then the do the work thing is creating is trying things and creating feedback loops for yourself. So experimenting. Um, it mightn't be, you know, for someone who's finding their day filling out with um, back-to-back meetings, why not just try and say, okay, I'm going to put aside a two-hour meeting with me in there so that so that day doesn't fill out the way that it otherwise will fill out. And I'm going to do it every single Tuesday morning. And then I might actually create another one and you can do some Cal Newport deep work or you can... You can, you know, why can't I allocate 15 minutes every morning to journal? Why can't I do that? Uh, why can't I allocate 30 minutes each day to write? Because in my experience, the thinking doesn't actually happen unless fingers are hitting keyboards or pens hitting paper or it's, it's just it's a million thoughts in your head when you're standing in the shower or you're in your other quiet moments, even when you're going for a walk, and I'm all for that, don't worry. But if you're not capturing that thinking and making sense of that thinking, you're not basically doing your job. Because the whole, the whole reason why we need leadership is because the world's complicated and ambiguous and uncertain. And if not for ambiguity and uncertainty, and we actually don't need leadership because it sorts itself out. So your job is to actually to, to look the uncertainty in the eye, you know, 
you, you won't ever make friends with it, with it, but you have to actually say, well, this is what I'm getting paid for and try and make sense of it. I had someone who told me he, his view is that leaders are in the 49-51 business. Their whole life should be about being in the 40. You're not doing your job properly unless you're dealing with issues which are 49-51s, as in they're vague outcomes, vague, complex, uncertain. So you better make sure you've got some 60-40 people around you. That's what that would say. And you best better make sure you're letting the 60-40 people do their job and make mistakes and get on with it. Mm-hmm. So if you're not, because really, as I said, strategy needs to be compelling and it's the best use of scarce resources and the scarcest resource is you and your, your energy, your attention. Um, and, and it's just an allocation of those things, I think. Yeah, Joel Peterson is the one that, that I've heard use the, the 5149. Uh, he he came it? on yeah. the show and uh, I think I wrote about it in, in Tough Stuff a little bit um, around letting go. Yeah, and yeah. so to your point is your, what that forces you to do is have a 60-40 person and a 70-30 person and an 80-20 yeah, yeah. person yeah. making decisions before they get to you. Yeah, definitely. And then the task is to be excited about the 51-49s because that's your job. Yeah. And-, and that's the hard fun part of leadership. Yeah. But no one has ever led unless they've woken up in the morning and their first thought is fuck. Is that fair? Uh, I'm going to tweet that straight off, straight after this show. <laughs> that might be the best. Like, it's so, so true. So true. So when, 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 you, when you just realise, and I actually told that story to someone recently, and they nodded their head like you did. And they said, what about when you're just, you're dreading the tweeting of the birds because you know the day is here. Is, it, is about to start, yeah. Yeah, you can't, and you can't stop it. And, and look, there has been those days, because I got to do what I did for a long time, that you knew that you were going to be on not just the back page but potentially the front page of the paper the next day. And, and it was going to be uncontrollable. The media is going to be out in front of your house. They're going to be putting cameras in your car as you're driving in. And what can you say? And there's a, what I've worked out, it's almost impossible to look good in those situations as well. It doesn't matter how much bloody, how clean your shave is, how much gel you get in your hair, <laughs> how good your suit is. You never look good in those situations, you know, when you're getting door stopped. And, and it is that that feeling and you go, okay, well, you've got a choice. When, when that first thought comes in, there's three little scenarios, I think. What's happening inside you in that moment? What's happening around you? Yep. But how are you going to show up? So the idea of showing up is then not necessarily riding it on your white horse as the person with all the answers. When that's your, probably your inclination, and in most cases that's what people want from you because it means they don't have to worry about it, you know. Right. That's, that's part. They want the person to walk in the room with the answers because it's what life's like. But you don't have the answers. And so I've, I've just got this little trick that I learned, and it's changed over the years. So... Even inside, this could be in a board meeting, this could be in a negotiation, this could be in any difficult scenario. 
I just write down on a piece of paper, I go, what does this situation expect of me? What does this situation expect of me? And then I write down, it used to be three words, and the last little while I've written a fourth word. And the first word I write down is calm. This situation expects me to be calm. And the environment that we come from in terms of sport, calm is not necessarily something which were, it was almost as though you had to be seen as angry and aggressive. And, yeah, and I came from the environment where I had um, <clears throat> my, the first coach that I worked with was Ron Barassi. Like it was just full on. Yeah. And that was just seen as that that's how you coached, you know. Um, and it, it was only the uniqueness of his personality which enabled him to sort of pick up the pieces, if you like, which because it was, um, uh, the, it was the old paint peeling sort of, stuff, you know, in, in terms of it. So the first one's calm. The second one is um, brave. It expects you to be brave. And only you know that. Only you know if you're being brave. And, and I, I walk, I've walked past situations I know I shouldn't have. And no one knew that I walked past them. Only I knew <laughs> that I walked past them. Yeah. You know? Where I saw something go, I should pick that. I should call that out, and then, uh, and it might have been that you were buggered, or but most of the time it just was you weren't doing the job properly. The next one's humble, because the good thing is humility is now valued. Yeah, that's been a major change in the time that I've been in sport. So, what would a humble leader do now? And the fourth one, which I've added, is what would a compassionate leader do now? What would a compassionate leader? And and the compassion starts with you. And I don't know about you, but most of my confidence in life was a product of my perception of my own achievements in so many ways. So if I thought I was doing well and I was, you know, kicking goals in whatever measure you want to have, my confidence was high. And I read recently, I can't remember which book it was, might have been uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, actually, we were talking about that before, that, that it said there's only, there's only so many dragons out there to slay. You know, you're gonna, if, you, if your whole personal confidence is based on slaying a dragon every day, well, you're going to run out of dragons to, to slay. So you're going to have to learn to be compassionate, that you're going to have days where you're not going to slay that dragon. You're gonna, it's not going to work for you. And so they're the four words. And, and under each of them, just write down because it's not what the situation has occurred. It's your response to the situation, which is the value. So that's, that is the situation is something which is happening around you. Your response is something happening inside of you. And then your, the outcome is how you show up. It's how you show up. And the interesting thing is that for me, I got I got diagnosed with depression when I was in my early thirties with clinical depression, and I and I would go to and get and, I, and one of my heroes in life is my psychiatrist that I had for twenty years, and I'd go into this is the Albert Road Clinic, sort of like under the cover of darkness, but I never wore a hoodie in my entire life, other than when I was getting treatment, and so some of that that learning that I just showed about talked about came out almost out of that process where, where okay, I had to learn to work out how I dealt with the situations I found myself in, you know. And um, so the gift of depression in some ways, you know, it, it, it gifted me back something which has been really helpful for me for the rest of my life, yeah. 
So I want to press on that a little bit with you because I've obviously written a book about emotion, which is still trailing the compassionate and the humility of the, the four words. Um, it ties in obviously, but still certainly in sport, not accepted in its full um, realm. In fact, it's getting there. It, it's getting there. Uh, depending on the sport, I think Australia is a little bit ahead actually. Um, but still very much in, in, in men's sport, it's still, uh, you know, anger and, and the kind of traditional aggressive, you know, you have to be seen as aggressive and, and people still argue. Uh, there was an argument yesterday on, on social media about, you know, a sports scientist saying it's actually optimal to bend over when you're uh, in recovery um, rather than, you know, put your, your hands on your head. And the, the comments are just like, I, as, as an opponent, if I saw that, I'd obliterate that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good, that, enough, for it's good enough for Robert Harvey in his 370 games or whatever it was when he was playing for St Kilda is one of the best I've ever seen. He used to do and, that in the middle of the ground. Yeah. And the, and the response was four pictures of Michael Jordan with his hands on his knees. He had that stance <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, cool. Great. Oh, well, they're two good ones. But so all of these things together, so like I call it the weight, like the emotional weight on leaders. And I think it's it's somewhat timely in that through COVID, what I found a lot of my friends, a lot of the people that I now coach realised that that weight was substantial on them. You know, once they had an opportunity to stop, sit in their homes in silence, yes. sit, in a, sit in the back garden, stare off into the distance, they realised mm. they'd just been papering over the cracks for a long time. Yes. And now yeah. I think that's, what, that's where the acceptance, I think, is starting to come in is because we've yeah. been through this journey together. What have you seen yeah. on that front as someone who in their 30s was diagnosed with with clinical depression and yeah. had the hood over their their head yeah. going into the the clinic to mm. to what you see from leaders now. There's, for leaders, there's a long way to go, and and it's interesting because my my wife's a clinical psych and and so and she's doing a PhD on um, the mental wellbeing and health of of leaders. Is I think we can accept it in our athletes because we understand that and they'll take a break and they'll come back and play. We don't then question their capacity to make the right choices when they're next faced into a very difficult scenario. Would, would you want your, um, you know, your uh, president going into war to be owning up to having clinical depression, well, there's a big chance that person has dealt with something like that. That's that's its reality. So I'm not sure how it is that you can do both without people questioning whether it's going to be affecting the quality of decisions you now make. Whereas with our athletes, we get they come back and play, you know, and we will accept that, and we they recover and they come back and play. The interesting thing is that I I don't see as and I, and I jokingly called it the gift of depression before. 
but it has been for me. It, it, I had to work out an antidote but to, and still do the things that I wanted to do in life. And if the antidote was giving up on the thing that I loved, well, for me, that wasn't that. Perhaps there should have been times where I should have done that. Perhaps that would have been the, the best thing, if you like. But I, I never felt that. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can have the conversations because I, I know the growing that actually came out of it rather than looking at it from the opposite perspective, as in I'm now a lesser person because of it. And in my case, it was an episodal as well. It was something I knew I had to actually try and find uh, a, a way of thinking it through. And so I, I read books I would never have read. I listened to people. I saw people. I created habits and rituals for myself. I ensured that I had good quality connections in my life. I, I reached out to my friends. But I was, ho- I was terrified that it was going to be become... And I, I'm never. I never know because there's always a there's always a part of being in. And I was sort of in a semi-public. No, probably public. It was probably public. Yeah. Particularly when I was in Perth, because there's only two teams. Yeah. Two teams there, so it was definitely public role there. Where I was terrified that there was got this um, conversation happening that I wasn't aware of. You know, it was, and there was all this questioning. Because one of the, the fundamentals that still gets downplayed in, in whether it's public life, sport, is is people's use of power, is people's use of power. That if people are using something to have, you know, and Brown, Brown stuff's great power over you, yeah. that's what I was scared of, that someone, someone would use what was seen as a weakness in me, whereas I knew it was actually me being strong in my own way. That's how I defined it. But they were going to use it as power over me somehow. And the interesting thing is when when I got diagnosed with uh, clinical depression, I remember walking out saying, yep, I'm going to try and do my best here. I'm going to lock in on a treatment plan. I'm going to do all of those things. I'm still going to be an AFLC club CEO. When I'm diagnosed, but I'm going to keep it secret. I'm going to make sure no one ever finds out about it to, to the point where I didn't even tell my, my family, and I've got a close family, and eventually I did. Whereas when I got diagnosed, I walked away thinking, who do I have to ring now to help just to know about this? Who do I bring into my circle? <laughs> yeah. It was a total opposite response. And so even with all of my learned experience, I went back to that place if you like but and and I think really in many ways it has been the gift that I talked about because I I did build the rituals around journaling around my I was always relatively good with my my physical stuff is and I've trained mainly but I I started rather my, my training changed from doing stuff in isolation to training in squads you know riding in pelotons swimming in groups you know so I could rebuild connection Mm. particularly the times when I because I end up getting the sack as CEO Melbourne Footy Club and so so my my community and my connection with something bigger than me was lost during that period of time so I had to rebuild and recreate that because I I understood you that that was potentially a really dangerous place you know for anyone who's you know I'm sure there's people 
who are listening who have been into that space where you where you if you lose your sense of place your your feeling of belonging um, your connection with the thing that you um, uh, that you really care for and, and and I also knew there was probably no coming back for me at that point uh, that 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 was a dangerous place and it's probably one of those those periods where I I was quite cognizant of uh, the space I needed to create for the for not only the support that I needed for the people around me, but also what I what I needed to do to support myself because it as as the, it was that that gets potentially life threatening and that's and there there lies the danger in that sense. And I, and I was probably yeah because I'd, I'd grown up the way that I had in in a you know, my father was a public figure and, and he died young because of his, um, um, you know, damaged himself basically uh, and made some bad choices that, that, that I, I saw the, I saw the depth of the danger signs, you know, because of the way I'd experienced my, my father in that way. Who I loved and cared for, him. unbelievably powerful influence in my life. But um, he died at died at fifty two because of his his behaviours. Really, mm. yeah. So that that was that was part of that reflection as well. That's pretty heavy, mate. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I I, I kind of want to keep going with this as. Um, I want to talk to you about building that network around yourself. So, you know, I've been on the campaign trail since writing the tough stuff around we need better support infrastructure around particularly head coaches, but really that is the person that's in the spotlight regardless of the discipline. could be the CEO, could be some other role. Yeah. And one of the questions I get most often is how do you build the infrastructure of people around you? So you've talked a couple of times yeah. already about networks and those could be formal. They could be informal. It could be yeah. sporadic. So for instance, me coming to you for help when, mm-hmm. when we had a player take his own life. So I was yeah. sitting there thinking, who do I go to here that is going to understand that, exact dynamic that I'm talking about because I don't want to talk to some psychologist who just tells me this and that how who is going to be the person that knows what it's like to have 50 sets of eyes look to them and say how do we grieve and and so I thought of you but we hadn't really talked since we recorded the podcast between them but I I had a feeling that that you would understand what I needed and so this is a long way of asking a question how have you thought about building those networks whether formal informal on a peloton how Uh, how does it come together in 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 the way you described probably in an informal or a formal way it's and and it's going to be different things for for different stages I i think that's yeah you know that 
I, I was I grew up in with my father as a hero. Yeah, you know, where I, I'd sit at home every night of my life waiting for him to to come home, and he'd sit on the end of my bed, and we'd talk for ten minutes. It was best ten minutes of a day. You know, that was part. Of, and he was CEO of Richmond Footy Club or secretary as they were then. And then I got to do the same job as he was doing, but I, and I was only 24. So the 10 minutes I was having with him, because I was so far out of my depth, became a, a different 10 minutes, but the 10 minutes was important. And, and then he died. And one of the things I worked out was everybody needs a hero. And, and a hero is a very um, amplified word. But a hero can be a hero in a moment. You know, someone can save your life because they, you know, they they see something that you don't see and they, you know, they push you out the road of an oncoming car or, you know, that can be the hero you need in that moment. Mm-hmm. And but my experience is that it normally it starts with um, two things. It starts with someone who you think will have integrity for the conversation. Is it, you, you know you can have the conversation with them in a way which they will respect and honour. Honour, not respect, honour. The second part is that they have an insight which is actually helpful to you. I know my, my, my mum would have unbelievable integrity for the conversation, but she mightn't be able to offer the insight that I'm needing if I'm dealing with, you know, having a sack the coach or something, you know. Well, they should be pretty good. She has grown up in our environment, you know. They've <laughs> seen a few. She has experienced it every so often. She'll say, they're not saying very nice things about you on the wireless camera, you know. <laughs> just, it's just, a, it's just a, not so much anymore. And from those two things, you then have an opportunity of building a connection with someone. So if you, if you and, and then it's really the connection builds on the quality of the relationship that you're actually able to form and is the person sort of buying in on your problem a little bit? They're prepared to walk in your shoes. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing on that is that I've got a transgender daughter, Evie, and so she changes gender and I realise I don't have what it takes to parent her in that moment. And when I finished uh, at Melbourne Football Club, I, I ended up studying fine art, which is, which is an unusual thing to do for a footy administrator. But I always loved drawing and art. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and explore and give myself, try something different and see, see, if, it, see if I love it, not just like it, that, that type of thing. So until you develop it in your whole life, do I like the idea of doing art full-time or can I do art full-time? So I ended up studying it for a few years full-time. But I, I'm at... I'm at the um, Victorian College of the Arts at the same time as Edie's changing gender and there's three kids in my class who are transgender because I'm like the tribal elder. I'm in my 50s. These kids are coming straight out of school. They're, they're yeah. at the same stage of life as what Edie's at. So, so they, they're, they're, they're my people with my insight, definitely, because that's their lived experience. Quite clearly, there was a couple of them who had who would have integrity for the conversation. You know, as in they really they understood and had empathy for. You know, and, and in one case, they had a non-supportive parent. You know, clearly they understood yeah. that I was going to be a supportive parent. And then we built a connection. 
you know, from that. And and so my my um, my advisors, <laughs> if you like, my heroes, my coaches, my mentors, you know, uh, were eighteen year old transgender kids I was studying art fine art with, and we built a connection. And I follow their art now because they're practicing artists, and and um, we're stating sort of the way you can stay in touch with people now. We don't talk a day or anything like that. But you can, you know, because they're running it. They've got exhibitions and. Mm-hmm. It, that they became that and and so but I couldn't go to um, my mates, you know, they'd be supportive but they weren't going to give me the insight that I needed. So these kids were able to do that and uh, I, and, and that was enormously helpful because I, I literally didn't know how to parent my child anymore and, and that's a terrifying feeling because you're so... It's a terrifying feeling as a parent, but I, it also the dang, the danger is that I end up um, having a kid trying to sort it out for themselves, feeling as though they didn't have anywhere to turn, and it was able to bridge that that gap. And and one of the sayings that we used to have is, it's hard for a free fish to understand what's happening to a hooked one. It's hard for a free fish to understand what's happening to a hooked one. It's it's a really good saying. So I, I've, I've never had, to, I've never thought of changing gender, you know. So we'd have these conversations. So I'm not sure how, I'm not sure, um, you know, I, I need your help in parenting you. Can you make yourself easier to parent, Tristan? <laughs> you know, that's actually, that's part of it. Um but also I, I know that what you're going through is really challenging and, I, and I'll never pretend that I'm walking in your shoes but I'm, I'm here for you in the, in the way and I'm hopefully building enough insight and understanding that we can at least have the, the conversations that we need to have but also recognise and understand there's a lot of this you're going to have to do on your own and because um, a lot of us have to do our own stuff, you know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that then becomes just part of that. So the I'd say it starts with integrity for the comment. The, is the person going to honour it? Have they got the insight, which is actually going to add some thinking and meaning perhaps to what you're having? And then hopefully from the basis of those two things, you can build a connection which can at least allow you through the, the period of it. In some cases it becomes a lifetime connection, you know. Yeah, and and that's and that and that's we then we probably call that friendship. Yeah, yeah. It's what I've been observing is people that don't know how to put those structures around themselves and don't know how to ask for help. Again, yeah, I, I don't I don't blame anyone because we've never been taught to ask for help. Which going yeah. back to that that emotion side of things, particularly yeah. young men, we don't even know the words and. Yeah, and and the simple Although we're ones. offered a lot of help. We're offered help, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Like we, you'd be coming down a stair, you'd be walking down the stairs. I bet you you'd be like this. You'd be walking down the steps with a box which is too big, and I go, "Do you want a hand, mate?" And you no. go, "No, no, I'm right. Not a chance." <laughs> so, so, so even when someone offers it, they got the generosity to offer it, and you go, "No, no," because there's some. And I, I heard you talk about. Uh, talk to, to Pippa Grange about it, and she used the wonderful you know, line of, because even those things I talk about, calm, brave, humble, compassionate, they all require you to cross a bridge of vulnerability. That's mm-hmm. a term. It's a great mm-hmm. term. Because mm-hmm. all of them, and so to be helped, 
um, yeah, and Matthew McConaughey in his book Green Lights, he says something along the lines is like there's angels of truth, angels of wisdom everywhere. We just don't tend to access them unless we're fucked, you know. So it's a right. it's a good line. Right. That we, why when we take it, why do we have to get to that stage where when people are offering it, and often the best help which is available is when you're going okay, when you're going okay, and you've actually, I'm going all right here. I don't need your help. I don't need to read that book. You know, I don't need to reach out in the way. Whereas, you know, it, it, it's it's human nature for us to almost get to a point where, you know, you're in such desperate, and that's what that's what led me to going to see a. Uh, you know, a psychiatrist is it? I was. It wasn't because I was thinking, "Oh, this is a nice idea. I should just go and see a psychiatrist." I was desperate. I knew there was. For the first time in my life, I realised how I how I was thinking on a day by day basis was not how everyone else had felt because that's what they all thought. That's what I'd actually thought until that time. Everyone has these dark thoughts that I have. That's just humans. And then yeah. I remember it was actually my wife said, "No, that's not normal to think like that." Well, not normal, that's the wrong word. She said, no, that's not how everyone thinks. Hmm. I think you need help. And it's, good, and it's going to be better than me. And you need to go and see someone. So that's how I, that's how I ended up in that place. Hmm. And so there is, and, there, and in that case, there is professional integrity in the conversation. There's professional capacity to support and provide the insight. And then it's a matter of, Building a relationship with that person, and, and I and I was very fortunate from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I've seen that play out. You know, again, the ones that the coaches, in particular, head coaches who ask for help, are the ones that are losing. Yeah, yeah, about exactly. to lose their job, and yeah. and again, it's it's more down that path mm. than anyone else, and it's you know it's yeah. like that that the, the the cartoon that you see on LinkedIn, you know, the, the guy's got the, he's got the machine gun and the, the guys have got their bow and arrows and they're like, oh, yeah. we're, we're busy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're we're yeah. about to go into battle. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like not even looking yeah. at them. Don't worry about it, mate. I've got this, but it is changing to your point. And, and particularly in sports coaching. So even, even the area that I've found myself in coaching coaches, the fact that Pep Guardiola has someone in his environment full time coaching him is mm. the is the opposite of the way we traditionally associate it. This is someone at the top of their game, at not not just in the league in the world, the best yeah. of the best yeah. of what they do. Who not, not only has someone that is a consultant got a job title and the job title is specifically to look after the head coach. And yeah. so the, yeah. the examples are there and, and the, the Eddie Joneses and the, uh, you know, Russ Liner that Frio had a, had a brought people in to coach the, the coaching group. Hey, and John DeStefano so, at, uh, with Craig Bellamy at uh, Melbourne Storm. He's got, yeah. 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 He's got someone. Yeah. Yeah. Gilbert Anoka is plays that role yeah. for the All Blacks. Yeah. And so they're there. Yeah. Right, and so it doesn't need Good to job. just be this. It might be my job. It is a great job yeah. because because you get to have, as a head coach, me, regardless of level, you have the insight and the honour of the conversation is yeah. there. 
immediately. Yeah. Provided you can build that connection and, and the guy, you know, and obviously trust becomes part of it. But you can only trust someone who you think's got the integrity in the inside anyway. You're not going to trust someone who you don't think they know what they're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that way. And and that doesn't mean they're always right. You know, that's as you know, part of the part of the coaching gig is actually creating space for people to to work it out for themselves. You know, here's a here's a frame of thinking. Perhaps you now, now you fill in the gaps in that in that thinking. So I would say more and more, you know, every the reason we have um, coaches in the first place is because we think coaches aid performance, and then we say, well, let's have coaches who help coaches with their performance, one way or another, and and you know, it's a yeah, and it's also the I think um, David Park and what do you used to call it a uh, a fearless friend or something along those lines. You know, you yeah. used to have a term yeah. for it. You know, the per, the, the person who you know who would say because there's there's no doubt we we get caught up and up caught up in our own bullshit at different times or when things are actually uh, you know just a bit overwhelming that we that we. We lose context, you know. We lose our frames of reference for for the life we're actually leading, and because um, it can be um, your force. These this noise is just filling your brain up, as well as obviously um, distracting you from from what's important in terms of your role. Mm-hmm. So I think there will be, and the good thing is, if you get, I reckon there needs to be a little bit of lived experience with it. I think it's, um, I had a very different idea of leadership um, before I did it than when I actually did it, you know, um, and and then, you know, I, I make a joke. I don't teach anything. I haven't fucked up. So it's not, it's not, it's it's not part of it. Like it even, you know, I, you know David Teague loses his job, you know, Carlton coach, and, and people go, yeah, you know, but I, I've made mistakes in that area. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I've, I've appointed guys who have coached and it hasn't worked out. And I've appointed guys who have coached and they've had terrific careers. And mm-hmm. so I understand that. But that idea of help is just a fundamental. People are hard to help. That's that's yeah. one of the things I've worked out. That people are hard to help, and so our one of my mantras and is and it came probably out of the parenting one with with, with Evie was the the idea of can we can we build a child for the path, not a path for the child? And can we can we just have that mindset? You know that if we're helping people develop the way they need to. And, and, I, and I was really, I was really fortunate. I had this person in my life who's 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 for he's coming in and out of my life for about three or four different reasons. But we haven't had a lot to do with each other in the meantime. And it's a wonderful Richmond player by the name of Francis Burke, who was a great, great Richmond player. And I, I told you about the ten minutes that I'd have with my dad on the end of my bed. When it came time for him to bring home a Richmond jumper, Richmond wore these lace-up jumpers during that era, and and all I wanted was a lace-up jumper with number four on the back of it. Because that was his voice heart. He was a beautiful player. My dad's um, can't get one, can't get one. But eventually, I reckon he always had a plan that he was going to get us one. You know, he couldn't buy them at the shops. He had to get them up. And he came home with this boxes and he gave me. He, he opened the box up and he gave my little brother Brendan, who's had a big sporting life as well. 
he gave him his little instrument lace out. And number four also meant a lot to me because I'm born on the 4th of December and my dad's born on the 4th of December. So the number four just sort of made sense. Yeah. And he's given me a jumper and it's number 30. And, and you know when you're a kid you try not to cry? You're doing your best not to cry. <laughs> yeah. about to sort, you know number 30 is, um, you know, just, uh, you call me China, China plate. You know number 30 is China. And, uh, yeah, Francis Burt. Yeah. And you know what Francis is famous for? And there's a Richmond iconic story. He played with a broken leg, you know, this Richmond story. And so he gave me number 30, not number four. So Francis Burke becomes his hero for me. You know? mm-hmm. He ends up in a great play. He makes team of the century. So he's, no, he's not like he... You know, I wrote a race letter to Francis last year because I like writing letters to Burke. And I told him this story about my dad giving me number 30 and not number four. And in the, inside the number 30 was giving your best Francis Burke, written on a biro. And my mum would wash the jumper and I'd take the biro out and I'd run over the top of the number, you know, because it was just like a big biro. It wasn't like a sharpie or it wasn't permanent. And I used to love wearing this jumper. And Francis wrote back to me, which is just a beautiful thing. He's now in his 70s. And he said, I'd be shitty if my old man got me number 30 and not number four as well. <laughs> he said, Francis, you know. And then a few years later, I ended up being CEO of Richmond and I'm out of my depth. And I really was I was sitting in the old punt road grandstand in the dark watching the Tigers train. We were, and this figure blooms up next to me and sits next to me. It's Francis Burke. He coached Richmond a few years earlier. And and he, I remember him just saying to me, he said, you know what, I, my reflections on coaching is that every time we reached into a situation where it was really difficult, he said, I, I'd think, what would Ron Barassi do now? What do now? What would, you know, David Park and whoever the guys were at the moment? He said, I never asked myself often enough, what would Francis Burke, what should Francis Burke do now? Mm. He says, and when you just faced him, do it. Yeah, think about what your dad would do. Think about what, you know, these other people you admire, but really think about what, what should Cameron Schwab do now? And then years later, one of the very first people, because it was at a funeral for Neville Crow, who was the president of Richmond when I was the CEO, and I'm, I'm talking to Francis, and it was the same week that Evie had made the call that she was changing gender. And Francis is like a, He's very religious, you know, Catholic, you know, a couple of times to church each week. And I find myself telling Francis, as the first adult outside of my family about this, and we had the most unbelievable conversation about parenting, most beautiful conversation. So here this person is just, for almost these random reasons, has played this unbelievable role in my life, you know. And so sometimes you just gifted these people, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, you know, and I've thought about this idea of why the number 30 and not number four and all that, and, and my idea is that, you know, and you've got a copy of my book, and that's why I've called it more to the game. You know, there's more to the game than you are seeing, that idea. And so what we're having a conversation about now is because we've got an insight into something, because we've lived it, that there's more to it than perhaps you thought it was going to be. And so the, the, the value is going into the more, more to, not in what the everyone else thinks stuff. So if we just stay with what everyone else thinks, he's got this, this wonderful, he does this podcast with uh, um, Mark Howard, you've probably listened to it, and he's talking about the days where, when he was a player and, and he's given a brown paper bag full of cash to go and play with whoever it was. I don't know which. There was, everyone was chasing him, so he probably was getting brown paper bags everywhere. And they were joking and laughing. And I imagine if that happened now, top stuff. And, and Nathan says, he goes, look, I think sometimes we get stuck between the sort of the old way and the new way. And he was basically, he was probably the, one of the last people to get the brown paper bag full of cash as a player. 
And then he stops himself and he goes, no, no, we're, we're always in that place. We're always between the old way and the new way. And I reckon that's one of the most insightful things I've, I've heard. Is that, you know, and even the context of the, the stuff we're talking about, there's an old way, there's a new way. And are you prepared to be someone who takes the conversation forward? Yeah, and, and I think about, so if, I, if Evie was my age and wanted to change gender, well, that wasn't happening for her. That wasn't happening for her. And I can't say that I was someone who took the conversation forward in terms of gender ID or anything like that. But I certainly know there were some very courageous people of my generation who did, who made it possible for her. The same way as Nikki Winmar makes it possible for you know, other Indigenous players. And, you know, and, and the conversation in all cases has still got a really long way to go. But are we taking the And probably even from my own point of view, I know the role I played in, in, in a small way with women's football. We took the conversation forward at the Melbourne Football Club by just having exhibition games and it gave everyone else a side. And, and, and so an exhibition game played in 2013. By 2017, we have a national competition. In 2021, Debbie Lee's inducted into the April Hall of Fame as the first woman because the conversation was taken forward. And I think that really, in the end, as leaders, that's almost the measurement. What is the important conversation I am taking forward in this moment? So by you bringing up the chat that we're having there, how do we make it easier for people in public life, have people who have got high expectations of them to show their humanness without actually reducing you know, them in the, in the eyes of people is a conversation which has it's showing possibility now. Yeah. That was one of my key objectives personally with a lot of what I wrote about. And it's why the book goes in certain ways throughout it, including, you know, addressing tough topics that aren't talked about. I could have gone further, but I end up stripping yeah. out a lot because you end up talking about just too many topics and beating people over the head yeah. too much. But might things the, around. Yeah. Might be the next book, might be the next conversation. Yeah, the, tougher, the, next... the tougher stuff. <laughs> the toughest <laughs> but um, yeah. that idea of, yeah, I mean, in our worlds, you know, what Brene Brown would call masking and, and alcohol yeah. And, yeah. and things like yeah. that and, and dealing with dealing with death and sharing personal stories around that and, you know, that's becoming more and more common. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that, that idea, I love that idea of, of moving forward and, Actually, this is a this is a a little bit of a not a U-turn, but a maybe a right-hand turn. I was actually responding yesterday on a post on LinkedIn about essentially traits of leaders. And I generally hate that conversation. And I don't use hate very often, but I I actually hate that conversation because I I don't want us to get to this singularity idea with leadership. I think that's more damaging than than anything um, there's so many ways to do it and so many ways that are relevant to the context yeah. of, of the way it's being carried out um, and and my response was around almost what you talked about there around the way coaches judge themselves head coaches is actually whether they can take it forward to your point they'll 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 look at 
and the conversations we'll have behind closed doors about who's a good coach will be what did they walk into and where did it end up and what were all the, the milestones along the way? And that has nothing to do with the win-loss record. No. Um, I could have this conversation with Tiggy and it, it probably would have nothing to do with wins and losses yeah. and draws. It would be here was all the, these things along the way, but we, yeah. we, sh- we shifted it. Yeah, I did. Um, I did. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, from a, a, a broader leadership perspective, that is, is such a powerful way to move away from this outcome drive in general that we have, which in some cases is warranted. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a, a bit healthier and a bit more interesting of a discussion around leadership as well. Well, changing what we consider outcome to be is, you know, so our, is outcome, which is, again, Pippa's uh, stuff on Indeed Winning Shallow, I did my worst work when I when I was obsessed with winning shallow because, one, it was an expectation I created for myself but also, also an expectation that somehow I felt was came with the gig, came with the deal. And it was in response to, yeah, and people might say the pressure role or whatever they say, but it's mainly pressure you put on yourself to be very outcome focused. And and I did work at Richmond, I did work at Melbourne and uh, the MCG's got a really big scoreboard. Like it's a big scoreboard. You know, it's a very unforgiving scoreboard. Um, and so that, that aspect of it. And so really what you, the measurement doesn't have to be, well, winning is actually part of being involved in sport. Let, let's not pretend it's not. Being winning premierships and silverware and all of that's part, big, big part. So you then say, the question is, okay, what does winning look like then? Well, yeah, the scoreboard kicks in as part of that conversation. But is it, are we wanting to do other things? Like, do we want to damage people as part of this process? Um, and and I, I look back and I go, so that my, my selfishness as a leader at different times damaged people. Was that the outcome I was, did I even think about at the time? No, but is that my reflection? Yeah, it is. And and I reckon that I allowed other people to damage me as well. There might have been some of those people who sat in judgment who's, I, I try not to consume it in the media, but if anyone tells you that you can actually not pick up the paper and see really bad things written about you and not let it affect you, even when you try not to and then people go, oh, mate, I'm, Really sorry, I saw that article by so and so. And you go, well, Max, actually, mate, I did my best not to read that. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know <laughs> that that's out there. You know, um, that human nature does kick in, in in those times, and you never become so desensitised to it. And nor nor should you, because if you become so desensitised to it, you've probably lost part of who you are anyway. But I get that that's actually part of it. So, therefore, it comes back to the thing that we're actually talking about. Can we, as a group of people, form an alliance and a connection which is so deep that we can actually wear together, but not in a way which is just we're kidding ourselves that we're doing it all beautifully and we're doing it all right and everyone else is wrong when we're right and all that, that we actually can hold each other to standards and expectations and know that, you know, that we can actually say, hang on, perhaps we could be better here. Maybe there is something in this. 
And that's the real the balance you have. And and often you have to form that. The one thing about sport, you have to form that really quickly. Like, like Carlton's going to have a new coach some stage in the next few weeks. And that, that it's going to be a coach who's never worked with that president, who's never worked with that CEO, who's never worked with that player group, who's never whatever. But guess what? We're blowing the bugle. We're going to war together in our own sort of weird way. And I'm not big on the war analogy, but we do have to actually work together really quickly. But really the formation of the relationship is when we have to go through some tough times together. And we and we 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 forge our way through it by building deeper connections, by having the conversations we should have, by holding each other to account, by doing all those sorts of things. Not for any other reason other than I like you and I trust you, and I actually I think we can do some really good stuff together. And you don't get a lot of time for that. You don't get a lot of time. And everyone says, "Oh, it's like a family." That's nothing like a family. Yeah. I am much much more forgiving of my family than I ever have been of you know, people in the environment that I'm actually working in because in the end we've got, we're clear what we're signing up for here. Whereas people say, oh, it's all about family. It's, no, it's not. My, my fam- I'm there for my family regardless, you know. You know, you, 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 you're there, you'll support them. There'll be times you won't like what they've done, but you're there for them, you know. And, I'm, and hopefully they'll be there for me too because I'm sure there's times where I've done things they wish that I'd never done. You know, you don't, you don't, that's a big thing to sack your brother, you know, or sack your sister. You know? <laughs> it's not something to do. And I've been, I've been blessed in that way because we're really close, you know. But the scenario being that we're moving the dial a bit, an important bit, but I know that I'm not going to stay in my job if I'm the coach of an AFL club if we haven't won a premiership in five or six years. I, I know that's the case, you know, or, or that we're not really close to winning one. And because in the end, that's what I've signed up for. That's what the thing's about. Do I, treat, do I expect to be treated decently? And with, you know, yeah, of course I do. And all I want you to do is make sure you treat the people inside the club with that same sort of decency. And if the end at the end of it we go, we gave it our best and we weren't, we weren't, we just quite, we didn't quite get the job done. Um, that's okay. Mm. That's okay. And that's why I like that idea of, but do we do we move it forward? Yeah. And and the answer to that can be yes. So we didn't Definitely. we didn't win the flag, but we we moved it and. Yeah. Um, and, and these were all the hurdles that we faced. You know, like I said to you, yeah. the coaches that have been coming to me for coaching are losing. Yeah. And one of the questions that I pose to them is, yeah, but is it worth it? And, yeah. and the response is wholeheartedly, yeah, of course. And, yeah. and, and it's, you know, this is getting to that kind of the winning deep idea around, okay, well, then the question becomes, well, why is that? If we if we were so focused on this one thing and you don't have the thing but it's still worth it, it needs to be something else. Yeah, provided that's what you've got an appetite for. Because I'm okay with people saying that they got there and they... It's an interesting thing because people often, even from a leadership point of view, they like the idea of it way more than they like it than, than it's reality. You know that. Oh yeah. 
you know, that it's, you know, I'll tell you a story. I, there'd be times, particularly when I was at Melbourne in the last part, where we just couldn't get it going. And we thought we'd done all these good things. My wife would be sitting next to me. There'd be two, two things I talk about with Seth, like my wife. We'd have a good win and I'd see the joy in her eyes and she'd see none of it in mine. Right, she's, the, you know, she's got joyful eyes. I'd see the light in them. And for me, it was just a pure sense of relief. There was no joy in it whatsoever. It was thank fuck. Thank fuck we won. You know, that's the women shallow stuff you guys had the conversation about. And she'd look at me and say, what are we, what's this all about? If we can't, you know, and she's spot on. And the second one, I'd be driving home, and the opposite result would get done a bit, but I'm badly, and I'd go, I think I'm fucking this whole thing up. And she'd look at me and say, you're allowed to think like that for two hours. Great advice. Because, you know, and by the time I got home, I'd turn the game on again and watch the game and maybe have a glass of red wine watching it. It wasn't as bad as I thought. I'd written down a few notes. So at least I'd, at least I'd worked out what I could talk to the coach about. You know, what is the basis of the conversation if I'm, you know, catching up for a walk around the town in the morning or something like that? Well, they're two really cool insights for the, this conversation. That one, it's the, the extremes that I was taking. There was no joy in it. Also, just this, this this idea that you could actually think in the way. And so by the time I'd finished that watching the game, and even if I'd only watched it for half an hour, it didn't matter. Sometimes we were unwatchable demons during that era. That, that at least I had in my head how I could open the conversation up the next day. You know, because if I'm feeling the way I'm feeling, well, I'm pretty sure the coaches felt like about five times worse, you know. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing was when, when I see our three men, because we were on planes a lot, I'd travel with, um, you know, the president was Rick Harp and we'd travel and the coach would be on the plane. You often got beaten when you played away, you know, because it's hard to win. You know, we, we were a pretty good side. We weren't the best side. We were thereabouts for most of that time. But often you'd lost. But just getting on the plane and actually having made a sense of it, and you, the guys would be watching the game again, I might, you know, look over the shoulder of one of the assistant coaches or I'd sit next to the coach or, you know, Rick Harp and the president myself. We'd actually, in the end, had, by being together and sorting it all out, we we got off the plane, we were okay, tired, but we weren't, we weren't going off into our own little whatever. And often there wasn't many other people on the plane because, you know, Melbourne, Perth, late at night or we played in Tassie. Then actually one of the games was that Siren Gate game where, where the, mm. you know, the, we actually end up getting the Siren the, the umpires didn't hear the siren. And we'd actually, by actually all being together, we'd formulated our strategy, our plan, our idea, our whatever, because we'd all been together for that three or four hours after the game. And and it's often, the, the problem is you're often on your own, in, in your own head, you yeah. know, at those times. Sitting in, you know? sitting in punt road traffic on your way home to, for you, yeah. to have your wine versus, yeah, on the plane with yeah. 40 people. Yeah. Or who you've actually sort of all been, you've gone over together and you're coming home together, that, that sort of feeling. Yeah. And, and, so, and even actually as a, as a practice of reflection, because I was travelling so often during that time, is I, I got to really enjoy that three or four hours you got to spend on your own with just you and your notebook, you know, or, you know, whatever it might have been. 
and and uh, and, I, and it took me a long time to realise how important that three to four hours, in fact, was. You know that I was getting probably once every fortnight, or we were travelling at least every two weeks. So so you'd have that, and so I realised I had to consciously reintroduce that into my life. You know, in a in a non forced way. You know, um, recognising that almost the most important competency that a leader can ever have is one of reflection. But how do you build a reflective competency? Because you, know, you always, always thought once I get to this unconscious competency, and I used to see these guys who were just great leaders and they'd almost do it without thinking. But then I realised that no, no, they're, they're not, it's not their unconscious competency, it's their reflective competency because they actually know what the situation expects of them in that moment, which is what they actually bring. And they, and they know really their role is not feel good about them, but it's to help people feel good about themselves in that in that time. So, yes, you're going to feel good about a leader who stands up for you, yeah, but you, the main thing you're going to do is you're going to feel better about yourself. Tommy Hafey was great like that. You Tommy, he was very much about people feeling good about themselves. You know? I think that's a wonderful attribute for a leader. You mentioned reading Pippa Granger's work and and a few other things yeah. along the conversation here, but what's really struck you from a you know a book or an audio book or a podcast or a, that you that you'd recommend to to other people to check out? Yeah, I, I, I love this idea of um, uh, borrow freely, apply uniquely. I've mentioned that to you before. Mm. So borrowing from, say, the, what I hear from you, but applying it from a way in a way which is aligned to your lived experience. So I'm a borrow freely, apply uniquely person. So the, so the, and it comes from all sorts. Of, it's interesting studying art full time. I, I got a lot from that because you, yeah, you are in your own space a lot. Still like an artist. Yeah, still like an artist, definitely. You know, and I remember actually one of my favourite drawings is we we did a. Um, at the, the Victorian College of the Arts, you got to go into uh, the National Gallery when they opened the exhibitions and, and so you got to spend time home. So we're often you're in an exhibition and we'd sit there and we'd look at one painting for three hours, maybe, you know, hold it. And you'd have to come back with your own view on that painting. So what there's a tendency to do when you're in a gallery is just go past, yeah, like that, don't like that, interesting that one, you know, I've seen that, yeah, bang, go out. Well, they had taught me how, how to see things really in lots of ways that we'd, we'd all we'd, there'd be three different groups looking at one painting come back with three different totally three different takes on what they saw and so this idea of being comfortable with um not having and even as a leader so i i, I would i remember my art lecturer said to me at one stage he said you 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 draw you're like a ceo you know you, you you do art like a ceo it's like the ultimate put down you know for an artist you know and, I, and it took me a long time to work it out and I, I then caught up with him a bit later and he said um he said you're always trying to close out the conversation you don't have enough confidence to leave enough space for the person to to look at your art in a way which is different to what you think your intention was in putting it out there you know and so that was so even in Listening to say Pippa or yourself, or you know, I, love, I, I, I really love Seth Gunn stuff. My favorite writer is a guy, David White, because I think he's just a wonderful observer in life, you know. 
that whenever I absorb their their idea is that I know what they're doing is creating enough space for me to fill it with my own ideas. So Seth Godin's book, The Practices, had a really good effect on me recently. I think that mm. his stuff's wonderful. Um, David White, W-H-Y-T-E, so he's written a little book called Consolations, which is my go-to, and it's my it's my grieving book, it's my what an uplift book, it's my whatever book, and he's it's very dense, the language. He's got a little line in it, if your eyes are tired, the world looks tired, and that's really sort of stayed with me, that, that notion, if your eyes are tired, the world looks tired. So David White, definitely, um, and I think from time to time it's good to revisit a classic. So reading The Grapes of Wrath or uh, Of Mice and Men or Hemingway, Old Man and the Sea or whatever it is is also. They're always interesting books to, to revisit as you get older because you you look through them through the eye. I'm, I'm now 57, so I look through at the eyes of the 57-year-old where it might have been a book I read for the first time when I was 17 and, and I find something different into, in it than what I found at the time. So they're, they're probably a few recommendations. I toyed around with the idea of updating my books. Yeah. And the reason that I chose not to was just what you've described there. Yeah, is don't update books, right? They, they change themselves. Hmm. You don't need to change them. So you can update yeah. your thinking and, and write another book, but in the eyes of the people, in the eyes of the, the people reading it, it changes itself. Does. Yeah, sometimes people will pick up something that I wrote a long time ago and I go, oh, I've just really gone past that now. And they go, oh, no, it meant everything to me. I go, okay, that's the important thing. But you're looking at it going, geez, I didn't put much thought into it at the time. But it doesn't matter in its own way. Then you, you try to fill them up with what your current thinking is. Well, no, they don't need to hear that. They, they, they got from it what they needed to get from it. Yeah. And, and that was the important thing. And, and then that might then encourage them to maybe listen. Oh, Michael Gervais, I like his stuff as well on Finding Mastery. His, his work's really positive, particularly his work with Pete Carroll. Um, and Owen Eastwood, who we've mentioned. I, I think sometimes it's good to listen to uh, people who you like as guests because the, the interviewer will take them somewhere where they weren't necessarily prepared to go as well. And it just, and you can almost see some thinking being uncovered as you're, uh, as you're listening to them. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some, so much, you know, there's so much good stuff around. You just have to make time for it, but make notes, write notes. So I go, you got to collect, yes, curate, and then you get to create. So collect, curate, create is sort of the framing of it that I talk about understanding meaning possibility of the property of three words you know you, you get understanding through the collection the curation brings meaning and the creation creates possibility yeah. yeah i've i've posted the my journaling and, and kind of notes for the tough stuff all right great. And, and it is this uh I'll dig it up and I'll shoot it to you. It is just this yeah. mishmash of things. And it's so great yeah, yeah. to look back on and just, yeah. and you say you turned that into. Yeah, that's sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's my first book. Yeah, it's, look at that, you know, just stuff everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and then it, it becomes this thing, right? And, and, uh, I, I like that transition and just watching that transition. And then, uh, cause you, what you capture is the original idea. Yeah. 
And then yeah. it's to, to your point, it becomes something else once it's the audiences, but yeah, yeah there's, and then you've still and got your original left. idea. You have. Yeah. And it's meant what it's meant for you. Then, and that's cool. And then you realize it's meant other things to others, which when it wasn't necessarily your intention, you know, and, and, and every so often I would do a drawing and I'd show my wife and she goes, Oh no, I think she's, that girl looks like she's, yeah, no, that's not what I try to draw, you know. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> we go, okay. Oh, that was responsible. <laughs> In some ways, it's good. You know, that it's actually something which is, and, and art does that. Art does that. You just end up in this, um, this, this, this place of uncertainty all the time, you know. You've got to know when to stop. That's a hard thing as well, you know. You yeah. can matter. There's been uh, a lot of paintings are ruined by. Uh, I needed someone on my shoulder to say, "Time to stop, mate. Time to stop." You know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's What's next for Shrobby? Where can people find you? What can they engage you in? My business is called Design CEO. So just one word, Design CEO, which I think is really about this idea of designing sort of leadership your own way of leading, you know, an expression of who you are. And, uh, yeah, so I've got my mailing list. I've got a lot of stuff on my website. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, try to post stuff regularly. My goal is to get sort of two or three articles out a week and and because I find that to be really important. So it's the majority of work I do is with leaders and their teams. I really like the idea of um, the working with a group to take them from a a place where they're not feeling as though they, they're understanding where they're at to a place where they're at least, you know, able to then take it in their own right. And so, and they often is CEO and their teams because the CEOs are working with teams who are often coming from a place of difference. You know, you've got the market of working with a finance person, working with a, you know, so how do they build common ground? Or how do they build, as, as Owen Eastwood talks about, their us story? How do they build their us story, you know? And, uh, yeah, so I've got plenty of stuff out there and always up for a conversation along the lines of what we talked about. I'm, I've, I've made a choice in life to be generous in the work that I do and, and hopefully it comes across that way. I love your your book as well, your magazine, your mm-hmm. artwork, your uh, thanks for sending me a copy of that. It's, it's sitting beside yeah. me here. I'd recommend yeah, people pick that up more, more to the game, what leaders can learn from football. Uh, because I, even though you may paint like a CEO, I enjoy your observations of footy and leadership as a CEO. I might have got a better mark from you than I did from my art teacher. <laughs> so you might have, no, that, was, that was all good. No, it was good. He, and it's interesting because he ended up being a, he, we talked about a mentor before. He certainly was that for me. Yeah, and he's wonderful. Mm. I was Rafi Shack. And um, to actually come across people later in, in, in a different world who become your mentors is, it's again, it's, you feel quite privileged in that situation. Yeah. Always a always a pleasure, Kemp. Good stuff, mate. It's good. I always enjoy chatting to you. Yeah, good on you. Yeah, you too, mate. I appreciate you coming back on. And uh, yeah, uh, first second guest. So congratulations. There's no award. You. you don't get. You don't get no, anything. Don't I? I'm just gonna. Then I just get your <laughs> get your 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 thanks and acknowledgement. That's, that's all I'm here for. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Shelby. Thanks, mate. You take care. Thanks, mate.